And uh, when I got my pad out to preach from this evening, I discovered that I'd... Uh, sounds like an excuse that's been in the papers a lot recently, but I had an earlier draft um, that uh, had more detail, but should be the right one now. So it should get Hangi uh, in 20 minutes, but it will be a bit of a, 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 a rocket through uh, this evening. But Haggai, as we meet him here, was writing to a group of pioneer pilgrims. A remnant, a small group of people who were Jews, had returned to Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon, towards the end of the Old Testament. And the last three books that we're going to look at at the end of the Old Testament are addressing those people who've come back. The great king Cyrus of Persia had conquered the Babylonian Empire and given permission for the exiled Jews to return home. He'd also ordered that a temple be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And all was going well until opposition began to arise from the surrounding peoples. Letters were sent to the subsequent rulers of the empire, and a letter was sent back which called for a halt of the building of the uh, city and of the temple. Ten to twenty years later, God raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to bring God's word into that situation as the building had stopped. So what we have in the book of Haggai uh, is the word of God given to Haggai to get the people building, to get them back going. We know very little about him, but what is important about Haggai is his message. And his message comes in four distinct visions, and they're there to get them building the temple. Now, as we go through this, of course, we don't have a temple. Uh, Christ is our temple. He fulfilled that. He's where God dwells. And yet also we read in the New Testament that the church is the temple of God, the people. So bear that in mind uh, as we go through. So firstly, the first vision uh, in Haggai chapter 1. He starts off in chapter 1 by exposing the problem to the people. In verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, the people are saying the time is not right. It's not the opportune time to go around temple building, goes the cry of these exile returnees. And it's interesting, if you notice there, no one's saying don't build, no one's saying we shouldn't build, but people are saying let's put off building to another time. The message comes to the leaders, but it's to the people in general. They've been stopped building at the temple by force. Do we really want to pick that back up again? Do we really want to pick a fight with the Persian Empire? Wouldn't it be better to wait until the circumstances were better, when things are a bit more secure, a more opportune time for building? But there uh, is a sticking rebuke to their attitude. God asks them a simple question in verse 4. Is it a time for yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? See, it turns out actually the people have been building, even against the edict of the king, but what they've been building are their own homes. Lavishly, in fact. At least some of them live in panelled houses there, it says, in cedar houses. David lived in the house of cedar. That's what he was told, that's what he says as he's thinking about building the temple. It was his way of describing living in a palace. And thinking about his own circumstances, David, that prompts him to seek to build a house for God. As it is, David doesn't build it, but David is instrumental in Solomon building it. The people here are living in good houses while the temple lies in ruin. They have not thought like good King David. They've just been feathering their own nests. And if you think about it, the people are sort of anti-David. David wanted to build a house for God when God wanted to build a house for him. But these people want to build a house for themselves when actually God wants them to build a house for him. 
They live in houses like David, but they're nothing like it. But it's worth remembering that we as New Testament believers can fall into that trap. Not disobeying per se, but delaying our obedience. You know, we want to do our own thing first, and then we'll get round to, to doing things later. But uh, their building, though, their lack of building, had an effect, and it does on us too. Things have not been what they were expecting back in the land in the rest of the chapter. It hasn't been so awful, because remember they were living in panelled houses, but there's a profound dissatisfaction to them. They've been living for themselves, but it's not satisfying. It sums up in verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. And it's God that's doing this to them. He's doing this to cause them to turn, to cause them to think about what they're doing. So God commands them to build, get building, in verses 7 and 8. They're to go up into the mountains, bring down the timber, and build the house. And it's a challenge to us as well, isn't it, as New Testament believers. We are to see the church built as we make disciples. Jesus is building his church through us, speaking his word to other people. Jesus is the real builder. He's the one who's actually getting on with it. But the means that he uses is you and me. The Christian, from the baby Christian to the not-so-baby Christian. Obedience to this command to build is possible because God is working in us as he was working through them. The power is in the word of God, not in the work of men. But we must get on with building by sharing that with one another and sharing it with the world around us. We see the result of God speaking his word in verses 12 to 15. The leaders and the people obey. Now, if you've been following through all the other books that we've been looking at through the Old Testament, this should strike you as being quite shocking. They actually do what God tells them. God speaks, they listen, they obey. And there are figures mentioned here, the governor and the high priest, the secular and the religious authorities all obey. Their spirits are stirred by God, it says in verse 14. It's been the message of Haggai. God has been speaking to them. And the Lord has sent them. They've done what they've been asked to do. Now God could have stirred their hearts without the message, couldn't he? He They could have just woken up one day with a really strong desire to build the temple. But that's not the way that God works, is it? And again, he doesn't work like that in the New Testament either. God uses his word, the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, to bring about change in his people. To see the building of his kingdom, and he still does that today. But one vision isn't enough, so he gives them three more in chapter 2. So, second vision in chapter 2. They're to keep building, because the temple will be glorious and unshakable. They're to work, they're to keep building. God tells them not to fear. Now, humanly speaking, there's plenty to fear from enemies outside, from discouragement inside. But they're to remember that God is with them as they're building. Just as Jesus is with us as we build the church, as we make disciples, he promised that to his disciples, that he would be with them. God says here and promises that he will shake the heavens and the earth once more. Now it sounds a bit obscure that, but the clue is once more. God is promising to repeat something that he's already done. And the context makes it really clear that the event he's talking about is the Exodus. If we're left in any doubt, Hebrews 12 tells us that that 
That's the event that he's referring to. The shaking of the heavens and the earth are promising a new exodus, a new rescue for God's people. They ain't seen nothing yet about what God will do. God will bring about a new exodus event, rescuing all his people, dwelling among them as he did in the wilderness, bringing them to his special place prepared for them. A new exodus is coming when God will fill his temple with glory. The glory that had departed from the previous one. The temple, we're told, will be glorious. The references to silver and gold are references back to the Egyptians. They gave their silver and gold to the Israelites as they left in the first exodus. Gold and silver that were used to make the articles that we've been seeing on a Sunday morning. uh, And uh, finally would be used in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what the desire of all nations is talking about there. The desire of all nations is translated in other versions as the treasures of all nations. This is a promise to repeat uh, the Exodus. God will shake the nations like a piggy bank, and out will fall the silver and gold for the temple. It sounds so great, so much that Haggai can write uh, in verse 9, as we have read to us before, that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former declares the Lord of hosts. They are to work because what's coming is going to be magnificent. A great rescue from God and a greater temple, even than the glorious temple of King Solomon. But, the fact is, if you think back to what we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah, this didn't happen. Not like they were expecting anyway. There was no great rescue from their enemies. By the time the Old Testament finishes, they're still ruled by foreign powers. The temple never outdoes Solomon's great temple. This one that they were building would only be half as big, and they would build it without the resources that Solomon had at his disposal. Even when the temple was renovated around the time of Jesus, it never reached the heights of the first great temple. So what is going on? Well, our right to understanding this comes from a careful reading of the text. Verse 3, uh, Haggai is, is to ask, verse 3, uh, for, read it to us, uh, who is left who saw this house in its former glory? The house there can't refer to this building they're erecting. The house it's referring to is the old temple, that's been flattened. Yet here it's referred to as this house, as though it's the same one. The language of this prophecy is picking up on the continuity that exists between temple after temple after temple. It needn't be that what they're constructing will have this greater glory. And it then frees us up from strange fulfilments where this temple has to end up fancier than the old one. What it points us to is a fulfilment happening in another way. Jesus actually is that glorious temple. He speaks of himself as such in John 2 and in Matthew 12. Even though he didn't look it on earth, Jesus is greater, more glorious and unshakable than the temple uh, that it speaks of here. He is the one who grants peace with God, verse 9. And then the church becomes God's temple in Christ, as Christ dwells in us. And we too don't look too glorious. Some of us, you know, alright, but... Um, But one day we will share his glory with him. One day we will have that glory. So God's not being deceptive with them. God does want them to build this temple that he's talking about there, but it's pointing to a more glorious temple that's coming. 
and an even greater exodus that came through Christ as he rescues his people. It's happening, just not in the way that they were expecting. Then there's Vision 3, I said we're rushing through this evening. They're to keep building because of a great reward, verses 10 to 19. The simple point of the third vision is that unholiness is catching and holiness isn't. Unholiness is like a cold uh, that you, you can't give, uh, you can't take away a cold from healthy people, but you can give a cold to healthy people. The practical outcome is, is two things. One, they can't build a holy temple in and of themselves because they are unholy. And secondly, a holy temple couldn't make them holy anyway. Whatever they do, whatever they offer, is defiled because of their unholiness. So is it all a waste of time? Well, verses 15 to 19 tell us that it's not. Things have not been great in Haggai's day, not desperate, just unsatisfying. But now God is promising something different. Now, it comes as such a surprise that critics of the Bible think it shouldn't be uh, there at all. But if you look at the end of verse 19... Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. God promises them blessing. But what does that actually look like? Well, it's not blessing because they promised to start building the temple, or because they've started. The temple, we've been told, can't bring blessing by itself. Bricks and mortar and timber can't bring blessing, can't bring holiness. And it's not because they're offering something to get blessing. All they can do is contaminate things with their unholiness. So the blessing that God is offering is gracious and undeserved. There's no way that they can merit this blessing. And yet God has chosen to give it to them despite their unholiness. And yet, with all that, it's not disconnected with the building of the temple. It must be connected to the building, otherwise why is it there in the midst of everything else where he's talking about this? But if we don't have the first half of the vision, we could be tempted to think that it was all about obedience equals blessing. But it's not that simple. Even their obedience was because God chose to stir them by, uh, their, to stir their spirits by the preaching of his word. Blessing does come with them working on the temple, but that's actually God being gracious towards them, even then. And then finally, vision four, keep building because of the nature of the temple's ruler. Keep building to the nature of the temple's ruler. Their ruler will be God and will be undefeatable. Will be God's, sorry, as in belonging to God, and undefeatable. The last of the messages is seemingly for just one man, a guy called Zerubbabel. Uh, if, uh, I, I really hope Becky was going to be here, I was going to suggest that as a baby name. Uh, you don't get many Zerubbabels around. But this is a prophecy of great things for this man and the people. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth like he did at the Exodus. Their enemies will be defeated like the chariots and the drivers that were drowned in the Red Sea. God will bring about this great victory over his enemies. And on that day, God will make Zerubbabel his signet ring. Now, signet rings were, were tools of power in the ancient world. They were used to, to put seals on official documents. And uh, when Joseph was given... Uh, the role of Prime Minister in Genesis 41, Pharaoh gives him the signet ring. It meant that he had power over all Egypt. And this is a monumental promise to Zerubbabel that this would happen. And yet, again, it seemingly never happens. 
At the end of the Old Testament, the Jews are still under the control of foreign powers. Zerubbabel, this great leader, disappears off the pages of the Old Testament in Ezra chapter 5. He's mentioned in Nehemiah, but as someone who used to be in charge, not someone who is. And again, the biggest thing to understand in this is carefully reading it. Who is Zerubbabel? He's the governor of Judah, yes, but he's also the son of Shealtiel, or more likely his grandson. Their relationship is made a big deal of all the way through the prophecy. Shealtiel was the son of Jeconiah, who was one of the last kings of Judah, and as such a descendant of the great king David. Zerubbabel, then, is actually of the royal line of David. He's a possible inheritor of the great promises God made to King David. He is building the temple like the promised divine son of David was to do. The significance of the signet ring is also linked to David through the kings of Judah. This is what Zerubbabel's ancestor, Jeconiah, was told by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 22, 24. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my hand, I would still pull you off. The king of Judah is pictured as a signet ring that God has taken off his finger. The royal line seems to stop. The family of David shall rule no more. So does that mean God has given up on his promises? Was that the end for David's line? Well, here in Haggai, we have God promising that Zerubbabel would be that signet ring. The line of David would continue. A descendant of David would reign. And it's in that sense that Zerubbabel will reign. Not Zerubbabel himself, but the line of Zerubbabel, the line of David. Zerubbabel is mentioned in Luke and Matthew, both of them's genealogies of Jesus. David's kingly line goes through Zerubbabel and down onto Jesus. And Jesus is the true recipient of this promise. He is the signet ring of God, his chosen ruler, his chosen king. He is the true Zerubbabel. We're just not used to talking about Christ in those terms because we're not very familiar with the prophecy of Haggai. He is the one who brought that second exodus, that shaking of kingdoms, started at his first coming and completing in that final shaking when he comes again. The fact that this doesn't happen with Zerubbabel just serves to point us forward to Jesus. Just like the the way that the temple not being what it should have been uh, points us to that as well. So we do have an amazing ruler who has defeated our enemies. He has won the victory for us on an exodus scale. He is king of our kingdom. He is ruler of our roosts. Because we don't need to look forward to this. We look back to this in Christ. Christ has done it. What greater encouragement do we need than that Christ, the great son of David, that great builder of the temple, will build his church? So when we're tempted to give in building, We can remember this. This is Christ's church that we're building. It can never fail. As we love and teach one another, we're building an unshakable temple with great blessing and an amazing chief builder who is also our king. So let's go on building. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message of Haggai. Father, thank you that you did get your people building as he spoke your word to them. Mm -hmm. Father, pray that you would stir us to keep building, keep going. Father, pray that you'd help us to keep reaching out with the gospel and keep teaching and encouraging one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.